Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Allison, and I know you've seen a lot of reflections this week and special programming about the one-year anniversary of the Capitol riot, but now I want to share a story with you that really struck me when I heard it. It focuses on the experience of Congressman Jamie Raskin, who happens to represent the district where I live in Maryland. It's about how personal tragedy helped drive a sense of purpose to fight for a version of the country that he most wants to see. This episode is something our friends on the Post Reports podcast have been working on. That's our daily afternoon podcast, which, by the way, if you don't subscribe yet, you should. It's excellent. All right, here you go. Hey, it's Cleve. Before we get started with today's show, we want to warn you that this episode deals with suicide. If you or someone you know needs help now, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can also reach a crisis counselor by texting HOME to 741-741. If you're familiar with Jamie Raskin, it might be because you remember him speaking to fellow members of Congress on the night of the January 6th insurrection. Madam Speaker, the baseless attack on Pennsylvania and its electors brought to mind for me the great Tom Paine. A year ago this week, as Congress tried to certify the results of the presidential election, thousands of rioters breached the walls of the U.S. Capitol, attacked police, and threatened lawmakers. And after midnight, when the Capitol had been cleared, Jamie Raskin returned to the House floor. Madam Speaker, my family suffered an unspeakable trauma on New Year's Eve a week ago, but mine was not the only family to suffer such terrible pain in 2020. See, just a few days before that, his son, Tommy, had killed himself. On January 5th, the Raskin family gathered for a small graveside service to bury Tommy. And of course, the next day, that was January 6th. That's Caitlin Gibson. She's a features writer for The Post. On January 4th, the Raskins released a statement about their son, Tommy. And this statement was one of the most extraordinary statements I've ever read from a grieving family. Here's some of what they wrote. Tommy grew up as a strikingly beautiful, curly-haired, madcap boy beaming with laughter and charm, making mischief, kicking the soccer ball on the goal, acting out scenes from To Kill a Mockingbird with his little sister in his father's constitutional law class, teaching other children the names of all the justices on the Supreme Court, hugging strangers on the street. It went on to describe his life in vivid detail and then explained his emerging struggle with depression. They wrote, 
And despite very fine doctors and a loving family and friendship network of hundreds who adored him beyond words and whom he adored too, the pain became overwhelming and unyielding and unbearable at last for our dear boy, this young man of surpassing promise to our broken world. And I remember very vividly that I happened to read that statement on my phone late at night as I was nursing my then three-month-old son. And I was leveled by what they wrote and honestly astounded by the way they were able to so clearly articulate their grief. And to be able to do that, even in the midst of what I can only imagine was complete obliteration. I write about families and parenting and because grief is ultimately an undeniable and defining element of what it means to be a family, I have often found myself writing about those kinds of intersections of life and loss. And personally, also, I had you know, just become the mother to a son only a few months before. And so I knew right then that if they would allow it, I wanted to write about this family. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Cleve Woodson, sitting in for Martine Powers. It's Friday, January 7th. This week, as we mark a year since the Capitol insurrection, we look back at how Jamie Raskin dealt with his son's death while also serving on democracy's front lines. Martine spoke to Caitlin about Raskin's year of trauma and grief and how it intersects with a searing moment in our history. Did you come here often with him? Yes. This is a... The hike I like to go on is one I did as a kid, and I took the kids on when they were kids, you know? Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about where and how you spoke to the congressman about these experiences? Just set the scene up a little bit. I spoke to the congressman over a couple of long hikes through Rock Creek Park, which is a really beautiful, sprawling, wooded, natural oasis in the middle of Washington, D.C. I mean, I I would ordinarily just come on the weekends, Mm -hmm. you know, forever. But during COVID, I started coming every day, first thing in the morning. Mm -hmm. Um, He grew up here and has been frequenting the park all his life. And often his son, Tommy, who had come home from Harvard Mm -hmm. during the pandemic after the campus closed and was living with um, his parents in their home in Tacoma Park. Tommy would join him in Rock Creek Park. Yeah, yeah he, would, he would come a lot. Um, but it was, you know, it was a tough time for him and lots of young people, and it still yeah. is. Um, yeah. We had the dogs with us, the Raskin family dogs, Toby and Potter. We were frequently running into constituents who recognized the congressman and wanted to stop and wish him well or offer their condolences. Hey, how you doing, congressman? Good to see you. Yeah, my, uh-huh. my deepest uh, condolences to your family. Thank you and, much. And, and, Thank you. Um, just as a, as a, uh, so in the month before January 6th, Republican lawmakers were objecting to the outcome of the election. And a Stop the Steal rally was being organized by Trump supporters for the date of the certification of the electoral votes on January 6th. And at that moment, who was Jamie Raskin politically? Like, what was his reputation? 
Congressman Raskin is a former longtime constitutional law professor. He was elected to represent Maryland's 8th District in 2016, and so he took office the same January as Donald Trump. He's a very progressive lawmaker. He's beloved by his constituents. He's very well respected among all of his colleagues in the House. And he has a distinct fluency in constitutional law. So he was always very focused on what was happening with the Republican effort to undermine the legitimacy of the election results. And he was uniquely positioned to understand what they were trying to do and what the implications of that was. And he had been planning to deliver remarks on January 6th on behalf of the Democrats in response to the Republican objections. So what was happening in Raskin's family at the end of December? All of the political tension and the uncertainty was absolutely on Jamie Raskin's mind in that month of December. That same month with his family, they celebrated Hanukkah together. And then at the end of the month, his wife, Sarah Bloom Raskin, had left town to visit her own mother. And the congressman's two daughters were with their families or their partner's families, respectively. And so at the very end of the month of December, he and Tommy were home alone together. Can you tell me a little bit about Tommy Raskin, uh, the congressman's son, what he was like in life? Tommy was a 25-year-old student at Harvard Law School, and he was also so many other things, a, a poet, a playwright, a pianist, a philosopher, a teacher. Everyone I spoke to describes him as truly brilliant, a lot of fun, riotously funny, and above all, perhaps a, a truly singular empath, just a deeply kind and compassionate person who truly felt the suffering of other beings in the world to a degree that not many people do. He had a very philosophical soul. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean... From a very young age, he would say, let's have a debate about free will and determinism. Or, you know, let's have a, let's have a discussion about the mind-body problem. He was and vegan. He believed in fighting for the most vulnerable people and animals. He'd really devoted his life to that. And he was also someone who struggled with depression and anxiety, which became a more pronounced part of his life in his 20s. What did that look like for him? Like, how did his depression manifest? Tommy's depression became more evident during his college years. And his parents explained it emerged as a great anxiety at first, um, and some compulsion. He was ultimately diagnosed with both depression and obsessive compulsive disorder. And he kept his struggle really quite private. But even when he was going through a hard time like that outwardly, he was usually still his sort of... Well, most of his friends were really stunned and... They just didn't know at all yeah, that he had this going on. You know, I mean, even like his girlfriends, you know... Yeah. didn't know fully everything he'd been through. Mm. And he always had a girlfriend. Mm -hmm. you know? With his family's encouragement, he did seek out a psychiatrist and he benefited from a regimen that was focused on keeping him healthy physically and mentally and from medication and from consulting with his psychiatrist. And otherwise, he was really quite insular about what he was going through. And 
In the very last week of December, the congressman told me that Tommy's demeanor had shifted somewhat and he was quieter than usual. As it's been explained to us, a lot of people who decide they're going to do it achieve a weird sense of calm and mm-hmm. peace with their decision. When I had seen Tommy depressed before, you know, I you know, I saw the conventional signs of things like anxiety and sadness and hopelessness. None of that was there. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was just acting cool as a cucumber and that should have been a tip-off that something was wrong. I mean, Tommy's somebody who basically never told a lie in his entire life, but there was a kind of deception going on at the end. And, yeah. So that's, that part is very hard, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and obviously he had made some kind of decision that he was going to do it by the end of the year because it was the last day of the year, you know. And so that just makes it hard. It just makes, you know, you just ask yourself a thousand questions about little things you might have been able to do differently to, mm-hmm. to stop it. Okay. What can you tell us about the day that Tommy died? So it was father and son alone in the house on that last night, the night of December 30th. They had dinner together. They watched television together and talked together. They ended the night the way they always did, where the congressman said, you know, love you, dear son. And Tommy said, love you, dear dad. And then they parted ways and Tommy went downstairs to the apartment on the first level of their house where he had been living during the pandemic. And then the next morning, Congressman Raskin was calling for him. And when Tommy didn't come up, he went downstairs and he found Tommy in his bed. I remember just a feeling of drowning in the first weeks and months, um, drowning in grief and agony. And then I was able to disentangle different kinds of feelings of loss. Yeah. I mean, we lost our son. We lost our middle child. I lost the only other boy in my family, (laughs) my nuclear family. You know, there were just a lot of different losses suffered. I think that kind of loss just so radically transforms your understanding of what the world is and what your own life is and what your identity is. In his memoir, he describes the immediate, immediate moments after, you know, 
when the police were there and before his family was able to make their way back to the house in Tacoma Park and where he was just catatonic, like rocking back and forth and saying, you know, my boy, my boy, I've lost my boy, my life is over. Hmm. And I think that complete annihilation was where he was based on what he shared with me um, in those, those early days. So Tommy's burial was on January 5th, and then the next day is January 6th. Can you take us through that day from Congressman Raskin's point of view? On January 6th, Congressman Raskin's younger daughter, Tabitha, and his son-in-law, Hank, who is married to his older daughter, Hannah Raskin, they met him downtown. Yeah, I thought... Um, I thought Tabitha didn't want to be alone, and yeah. it turned out she was concerned for me. She didn't want me to be alone. Well, not so often they watched from the gallery as he delivered the opening remarks, and then they returned to the office of House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, and that is where they were when the insurrection began to unfold. On the House floor... Things were rapidly devolving into chaos as it became clear that the Capitol had been breached. A lot of the Democrats were yelling over the Republican side, like, you did this, you, this is what you wanted, call off your stormtroopers, all this kind of stuff. Mm. And um, then I heard the most awful sound I've ever heard in my life, I will never forget it, of people trying to barrel into the building with like a battering ram. I don't even know what they were holding, but they were trying to crash into the the central door into the house chamber. And um, so people began to run over the door to try to support it and put furniture up there. And then a bunch of Capitol officers ran in with their guns drawn uh, to try to protect the door. And, you know, people were screaming and calling their spouses to say goodbye. Everybody was yelling, take off your pins so you wouldn't be recognizable as a member. Right. Because we wear these pins so we right. can get into the buildings and stuff. And, uh, there was a frenzied evacuation from the House. All of the members of Congress were ushered away to a secure location. And as he was relocating there, he was texting with Tabitha and Hank and his chief of staff, Julie Tagan, who was trapped in Steny Hoyer's office along with them. They had barricaded themselves into Steny's office. Okay. They had pushed the furniture up against the door. They had been able to triple lock the door, and they were hiding under the desk. As the uh, insurrection was escalating, the congressman was telling me that someone sent him a photograph of one of the insurrectionists holding the Confederate flag in Statuary Hall. Um, and I couldn't believe it. And at that point, he walked over to the congresswoman from Wyoming, Liz Cheney, and showed her that photograph. And I said, Liz, it looks like we're under new management here. Mm. And she said, oh my God, what have they done? Something very striking was the fact that the congressman described watching all of this happen with a strange sense of remove. What were you thinking at that point? 
I guess where we should be. Well, I was thinking about Tabitha and, right. and Hank. Yeah. Um, but what was weird was I experienced no fear during the whole thing. I felt like the very worst thing that could ever happen to me in life had already happened, and I wasn't afraid. What was there to be afraid of when, you know, the very worst thing imaginable had already happened to him when he had buried his only son the, the day before. What happened later that night and into the evening after the Capitol had been cleared? The members of Congress returned to the floor to finish the work of certifying the election. And that was something that, you know, the Democrats felt very strongly about, that Congressman Raskin felt very strongly about. And he was the last to speak that night. Um, that was past midnight. We are a government of laws and not of men. We will betray this principle if we trade a government of laws for a government of men, or even worse, a single man, or an impressionable and dangerous mob intent on violent sedition and insurrection against our beloved democratic republic. At last, the election was was certified. It, it was confirmed that you know, President-elect Biden would be the next president of the United States. And it was close to four in the morning when Congressman finally went home. And he told me that when he got there, he he went upstairs and his wife, you know, Sarah Bloom Raskin, woke up and said, what happened? what happened? And I said, they tried a coup and they tried an insurrection. But Biden won, and we counted the vote. And then, um, but already that evening, I started to talk to Ted Lieu and David Cicilline and Joe Neguse about drafting an impeachment article for incitement of insurrection. And I also... And after essentially experiencing a second drama in a very short period of time, how does Congressman Raskin start to process that, that these two horrible things have happened in two different spheres of his life almost at the same time. Just by virtue of the fact that the insurrection happened the day after burying his son, the congressman told me, you know, for him, on one hand, these two tragedies are are logically distinct, but for him, they are they are forever entwined. I mean, Tommy was struggling with depression, but the whole situation was made immeasurably worse by Mm COVID-19 and by the condition of our society under Donald Trump. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying that Tommy died because of Donald Trump. He was struggling with depression, but depression exists in a in overall social context and mm-hmm. COVID-19 was absolutely terrible for the emotional and mental health of the country and especially for young people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a, a terribly isolating and ravaging experience for a lot of young people. Mm-hmm. 
And um, January 6th also did not pop out of nowhere. January 6th was the culmination of years of propaganda, disinformation, uh, racism, mm -hmm. and incitement to violence. So the, the truth is that I see those two terrible traumatic events as very intertwined in my life. And in a cosmic sense, they were logically independent of each other. Right. But in my life, they are inextricably bound. When we come back, Congressman Raskin attempts to channel the pain of these two traumatic events into his work on Donald Trump's second impeachment. That's after the break. Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday, or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts. In January, Speaker Nancy Pelosi tapped Congressman Raskin to lead the second impeachment of Donald Trump. And until she came to him with that request, it wasn't on his mind that he would be serving in that capacity as lead impeachment manager at such a pivotal moment in our nation's history. That was not something that he said he had been envisioning, especially in the midst of such personal grief. I mean, at, at my lowest points of despair and desperation, sometimes I would say to myself, let Donald Trump and Steve Bannon and Marjorie Taylor Greene have it. Let them, let them mm -hmm. have it all. And then I would immediately start thinking about the girls. And yeah. right. my nieces and nephews and all the great kids Those I grandchildren know. grandchildren someday. And it's just not yeah. a responsible attitude. And, um, and so as I've gotten stronger and stronger, I know that this is... This is a political and personal mission that I can never back down from, ever. And he consulted first with his family about that before agreeing to do it. What was their reaction when he told them, look, I think that right now I need to be one of the leaders of this effort? You know, I think those conversations were a process. I, I spoke to his daughters and his younger daughter in particular, Tabitha Raskin, said that, you know, it, it took her some time to kind of come around to the idea that there was very much this feeling of the family needing time together and needing to focus on one another and them needing him around and also fear, fear for his safety. I mean, look at what had just happened at the Capitol and by becoming the face of the second impeachment, I think there was some anxiety too about what that might mean in terms of his safety and they had just lost Tommy and the prospect of having the safety of another member of their family in jeopardy was was frightening. But ultimately his wife told me that, you know, the way she put it to me was that they understood that he was the person of this moment in history and 
that he had to do it. He was, again, uniquely positioned to have this fluency when it comes to constitutional law. He he taught constitutional law, so he was explaining the Constitution to college students. What better person to present an article of impeachment to the public in a way that would connect and and be comprehensible? And ultimately, his family was entirely supportive of him pursuing this role. When I went to work to try to defend our democracy, like I went to work to try to repair our family and restore some sense of peace to our home, all those things felt like it was one mission to me. It didn't feel like I was torn between Mm -hmm. two competing projects. And especially again, because Tommy was a political person, a moral person, someone who believed so fervently in in fighting for the most vulnerable people and the preservation of democracy, that very much fueled the congressman's commitment to devote himself to fighting to preserve the, the democracy that had been so directly assaulted on January 6th. You know, I, I think a lot of my colleagues were saying, you know, Jamie is dealing with his grief by throwing himself into the impeachment and the trial, which didn't quite capture it for me. It wasn't a distraction for me. It was a channeling of all of the emotion and love that I have for my son. As lead impeachment manager, Congressman Raskin was really the voice and the public face of the second impeachment of Donald Trump. And he presented the arguments very much in the in the way that you might expect someone who is known as such an eloquent speaker and also such an effective communicator and a teacher of constitutional law. When my opposing counsel says that you should ignore the president's actions after the insurrection began, that is plainly wrong. And it, of course, reflects the fact that they have no defense to his outrageous, scandalous, and unconstitutional conduct in the middle of a violent assault on the Capitol that he incited. Many of his remarks went viral because they really conveyed the depth of his conviction and his his belief in what he was arguing. And also he really humanized the experience of what it was like to be at the Capitol that day. He used really powerful oratory to make his case to explain that, you know, what are we talking about when we say a high crime and a misdemeanor under the Constitution and if what happened on January 6th is not an impeachable offense, then there is no such thing. There has never been a greater betrayal by the president of the United States of his office and his oath to the Constitution. I will vote to impeach the president. We fell 10 votes short in the Senate of putting an end to the threat of Donald Trump. 
and mm -hmm. the malignant movements that he ignited in the country. And he's still out there, so this struggle's not over. And In our conversations, he told me that there was a period of time where he believed after Tommy's death that his career was over. Again, I think a loss that staggering really throws everything into question. And he said that he felt for a time like his work on the impeachment might be the last meaningful work that he would ever do. Wow. And that time passed for him, obviously. I mean, he is now, I think, from what he expressed to me, what he has expressed publicly, what he wrote in his memoir, has never been more committed to the fight to preserve and protect the democracy, which he feels is still very much under threat by Donald Trump, by Donald Trump's supporters, by the pro-insurrectionist forces that are still out there. I mean, I, I'm in this for the long haul. I mean, I, I view him as a clear and present danger to American democracy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, wh whatever else all these terrible events come to mean, uh, I, I know that I have a responsibility to do whatever I can to preserve American democracy, which is fragile in a lot of ways. Mm. You know, I, I feel that really strongly. And I know Tommy felt that strongly and would feel that strongly. How has Congressman Raskin tried to understand what it was that his son was going through? When we spoke about Tommy's depression, it was clear that it was agonizing for the congressman to not be able to understand what Tommy was, was feeling, which is, is such a fundamental and primal impulse of, of all parents. You just want to be able to empathize with your children. And the congressman was explaining to me, you know, he's never had depression himself. He, he hasn't faced that battle. But he relayed one anecdote that happened to him where he, uh, in the spring, uh, a few months after... Tommy had died, um, Raskin had to get an MRI uh, for what turned out to be a benign growth uh, on his stomach. I was wheeled into the MRI machine. I don't know if you've ever done an MRI. Yeah. But my whole body was in it up until, like, mm -hmm. my forehead. Mm -hmm. And as they're wheeling me in, the nurse said, you're not claustrophobic, are you? And... I was so claustrophobic in that machine. Yeah. And uh, I was going to be in there for 37 minutes. Yeah. And um, within 30 seconds, I began to completely freak out. And I began to think about Tommy and what he must have felt like um, being trapped in 
the desperate emotions of depression, you know. And um, they had given me a little hand contraption that I could squeeze if I felt I couldn't take it. Yeah. And um, I was going to squeeze it right away, and then I began to say to myself that, you know, if Tommy could live with that kind of feeling for weeks or months or years, I could certainly handle 37 minutes. That experience is one that he returns to when he's trying to understand what it might have felt like for Tommy to be to be trapped within his depression. I had a conversation with him a week or two before where he said he didn't know whether he was ever going to be happy. And I said, you know, I knew he'd been happy many times in his life and I knew he'd be happy again. And uh, that, you know, when you're sick, you can never imagine what it's like to be healthy again. And when you're healthy, yeah. you can never imagine what it's like to be sick. But both parts are aspects of the human condition, you know? Everybody goes through periods of being healthy and everybody goes through periods of being sick. Right. Um, uh, and what did he say? So, I don't know. I, I, I kept, I just kept talking. I should have, I should have just asked him whether, you know, he was having any Suicide. I mean, one of the things that I regret is that I didn't really use that word very much, you know. Keelan, I just wonder, you know, you're you're walking around Rock Creek Park hearing him talk about this. I guess were were you surprised by the way that he was so frank about what he was thinking then and what he's thinking now about these incredibly painful experiences? It was striking to me how open the congressman was in speaking about his experiences and his pain and his reflections of everything that had come to to pass in his family. I also know that grief can elicit can either make people turn inward and feel very fiercely protective and private over their experiences and not inclined to share them outwardly. Or sometimes it can push people in a direction of radical openness and that there is great meaning in being able to name your experience and to explain where you are with it and what it feels like to move through it and to know that other people have been in their own version of that same space. And so on one hand, it might seem surprising to hear someone, especially someone public, especially someone prominent, be so incredibly forthcoming and so vulnerable and so deeply thoughtful and open about what they're going through. And yet at the same time, grief wants a witness 
I think grief can feel so lonely otherwise. And at a time when there is so little comfort to be given, really what what is still possible is to feel seen by other people as you are becoming this new version of yourself that you have to become after you lose someone so so fundamental to who you are. It's so interesting to hear how Congressman Raskin sees these two tragedies in his life as really intertwined, that they are part of each other, that the that how he responded to January 6th is driven by his love for his son. But I wonder for you, seeing these two different tragedies in his life that you have been reporting on, how you see them intertwined. Tommy left a note for his family before he died, and he wrote, Please forgive me. My illness won today. Please look after each other, the animals, and the global poor for me. All my love, Tommy. I I think his parting instructions about how he wanted us to live Mm -hmm. were very consistent with... um, with trying to take care of our family, our friends, uh, our country, our world. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really what it was all about, mm-hmm. you know. You were describing them that you feel like, like that, that note was like a roadmap. Yeah. He wanted a lot more from democracy, not less from democracy. I mean, he wanted, um, He wanted to see a society where everybody is nurtured Mm -hmm. and where everyone's creative energies are liberated. Mm -hmm. Um, uh... In some ways, like it does seem like there is a real parallel in these two tragedies of losing a person or losing a country that you really love and you really, really want to hold on to. And that for him, it's like trying to hold on to the thing that he still can. As Americans and as humans, I think we're at this moment in our communal collective history where so many people have suffered personal loss and are grieving so many things and so many so many, so many people, so many aspects of what our normal life usually is. It's just already been a time of, of sorrow and of grief. And then on top of that, seeing what happened the day of the insurrection, that was grief too. And that was trauma too, to see American democracy under attack like that and to see our way of life so violently threatened And that was a moment of grief, too, for anyone who loves this country, who loves democracy, and and certainly for Congressman Raskin. He said at um, Tommy's public memorial service in, in April that when his son died, he lost 
his belief in the certainty of happy endings and the idea that good always triumphs. There is a certain optimistic outlook that was, of course, shattered by something so calamitous as the loss of his son. And then to have that followed so quickly by this tremendous, egregious assault on our on on our country, on everything our democracy is supposed to represent. And then in the aftermath of it, to have the congressman emerge the way he did as the voice in the face of the impeachment at a time of great personal tragedy, I think part of why his story resonated so widely was because so many people could connect to the idea of weathering personal loss and and know the sense of despair and futility that that can elicit. But instead, there he was standing up and continuing to fight and doing everything he possibly could to try to pull American democracy back from the precipice. And I think that was a powerful thing for people to see and to realize that despair is paralyzing and ultimately self-destructive and that our democracy and our world are worth fighting for even at the moment when you most feel like you've lost the strength and the will to keep going. Caitlin Gibson is a features writer for The Post. Congressman Jamie Raskin's memoir was published this week. It's called Unthinkable, Trauma, Truth, and the Trials of American Democracy. This story was produced by Lena Muhammad and Emma Talkoff and edited by Robin Amer. It was mixed by Renny Svirnovsky. If you or someone you know needs help now, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800 273 8255. You can also reach a crisis counselor by texting HOME to 741741. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon. Our producers are Lena Muhammad and Jordan Marie Smith. Ariel Plotnik and Rini Svernovsky are associate producers. Sabby Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. Sean Carter is our engineer. The post-director of audio is Renita Jablonski. We're dropping a special episode in your feed this weekend, so look out for that. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, 
I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Mm-hmm.